First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. I love new adventures, traveling to new places, meeting new people, and discovering things new to me. Late last September, I was driving to the Gulf Coast for a trip with a college friend. I picked up my friend at the airport in New Orleans, and over the next week, we worked our way up to Nashville, where I dropped her at the airport and continued my adventure home. On my way down to New Orleans, I considered meandering from the interstate to the Great River Road along the Mississippi River. As I was looking at the route, a certain town name popped out at me. Now I definitely had to change my plan. Just before reaching that town, I passed through the town of Lakeview on the shore of Horseshoe Lake. This oxbow lake was formed over the years of the Mississippi changing its course cutting off the curve from the flow of the river. There was what looked to be a new fishing pier with a good view of the cypress trees scattered in the lake. I stopped to take a closer look. I struck up a conversation with the man fishing on the pier and asked him what he knew about that next town down the road. As a recent transplant, he said he wasn't familiar with the history of the area. A native of Mississippi, he was part of the Northern Migration in his younger years and had returned south after retiring from the ministry in Cleveland. I'd say he's semi-retired and still taking every opportunity to spread the gospel. <laughs> Among other things, he talked about his concern for all the folks who hadn't taken Christ for their savior. When I managed to get in a few words, I mentioned that I was probably one of those folks he was worried about. With the time slipping away, I did not take the opportunity to share my religious ideas and beliefs. I wished him well and went on my way. Less than 15 minutes down the road, there was my destination. A good thing, too, since I was down to the last 18 miles on my gas tank. In my excitement, I'd forgotten to stop for gas at bigger towns along the way. I had to stop and take a picture of that usual green road sign announcing the town. It read, Elaine, population 636. Now, I rarely meet other people who share my first name, but a town? Never have I ever encountered a town bearing my first name. I did find one bearing my last name in Austria, but that's another story. The next sign with my name on it was for the Elaine Trailhead on the Delta Heritage Bike Trail. Cool, my name on a bike trail. Next, lucky for me, the first business I came upon was Robert's One Stop, selling gas, groceries, fried chicken, and other necessities, relief. Then I saw the gas pump and I wasn't so sure. I asked another patron going in if I could really get gas from that old pump. She confirmed it really worked. Gas tank filled and fried chicken by my side for lunch, I continued into town. The initial scene was pretty grim. 
with shells of roofless, windowless brick buildings for most of the first block. My faded name appeared on the grocery store and a recreation center. On the corner building, however, was a new sign reading, Coming Soon, Elaine Museum of and Civil Rights Center. Elaine, motherland of civil rights. Hmm, I was in the South, but I wasn't sure what that was all about. Down the block, things improved. Newer, well-kept buildings included the fire station, the Baptist church, the Church of God, and the post office. I stopped in the post office and asked the clerk how the town got its name. She said it started out as a train depot, but beyond that, she suggested I talk to Mary Olson at the Elaine Legacy Center in the old school. So I continued my exploration around town. Driving up and down all five north-south streets and all nine east-west streets, I noticed four-way stops at every, yes, every intersection. <laughs> Very unusual for a town of 600, I thought. I found the closed-up high school built in 1984, chained and padlocked, with the bulletin board inside faded and missing a few letters in its display. No sign of the Legacy Center, though. On down the street were a couple more buildings that looked like schools. The parking lot was empty, but I saw a sign that said Community Center, and there on the next building was the Elaine Legacy Center sign, and again, the Motherland of Civil Rights sign. No one appeared to be around, but I found the door unlocked and ventured in. On the white marker board was the phrase, we used to own land, but, and marker drawings of a black man, a matchbox house, a shotgun house, and a row of books with the words, knowledge through reading. A bulletin board had photos of the Obama family and the inauguration with the words, this would not be possible without the Elaine 12. I wondered what that meant. On the wall, there was a Motherland of Civil Rights t-shirt and a conference flyer from February of 2000 about the Elaine race riots. Then I found a printed copy of a PowerPoint entitled Synergy of History Through Rural Elaine Area. It listed the 1919 Elaine Massacre, the 1923 Supreme Court case, Moore versus Dempsey, the Hopewell Indian Mounds Trail of Tears and 1919 Mass Grave, the construction of the bike path, and the development of the Lakeview National Historic District. Looking further through the document raised more questions in my mind. Photos of locations involved in the massacre, the train station, Main Street, the hanging tree with about a dozen bodies hanging, the church where the massacre began, the church where the Elaine 12 worshiped together, the sites of the mass graves, the memorial willow tree planted by the trailhead of the bike path in 2019, the Lakeview relocation project from 1937 to 38, when the federal government offered low interest loans to relocate African Americans in the area of the massacre and mass graves. I would have to look into this further when I had the chance. 
For now, I had to get back on the road and get to New Orleans. Later in the trip, my friend and I stopped in Montgomery to see the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in the Legacy Museum. This was my second visit, but this time I had something specific to find. I found the names of a few killed in the 1919 massacre. In the Community Remembrance Project area of the museum, I found the jars of soil dug up from the massacre mass burial site and very brief information about the massacre. But the most compelling information I learned was through further research and conversations after I returned home. With the 100th anniversary of the massacre in 2019, there are quite a few articles about the massacre to be found online. Compared to the original news articles and encyclopedia accounts reporting a race riot, quite different versions of what happened are coming to light. Early stories claim that about 100 Negro sharecroppers met on September 30th planning to kill all whites. A group of white men, possibly local law enforcement officers, went to check it out. It isn't known who fired the first shot between the visitors and the men standing guard around the church, but the gunfire exchange resulted in the death of a white man. The next day, hundreds of white people from the surrounding area came in to rise up against the Negroes who started the riot. Bloodshed ensued until soldiers came in to stop the violence two days later. Over 100 Negro men and women were arrested and charged. One month later, they were tried and found guilty in mere minutes of deliberation. Twelve were sentenced to the electric chair. Word got out through a Negro news reporter who passed for white. Organizations came to the assistance of the Twelve on death row. Over the next four years, their case was eventually reviewed by the Supreme Court in Moore v. Dempsey in 1923. All 12 were exonerated and released on the grounds of not receiving a fair trial. Stories that have come out over the years reveal, reveal that the people meeting at the church were unionizing to get fair prices for their cotton. Over 200 and possibly more black men, women, and children were killed over the three days of the massacre. Only five whites were killed. Only blacks were arrested with charges for the deaths of the five whites. No whites were ever held responsible for the hundreds of blacks killed. Other accounts from black residents reveal that they were not only sharecroppers working for white plantation owners, but land-owning farmers as well. I had a long phone conversation with Reverend Mary Olson, Operations Director of the Elaine Legacy Center, Mary is a transplant originally from Wisconsin and has been working in Elaine for over 20 years. Along with James White, program director, local resident, and descendant of family members killed in the massacre, they have conducted programs for kids, a food pantry, and clothes closet. A bigger goal, to develop income for the community, involves heritage tourism. With the future museum that will be dedicated September 30th of this year, Sites from the massacre are around town and along the main highway and the bike trail. Mary talked of drawing in groups of people to visit the sites and hear the oral histories from residents, perhaps incorporating community service projects like painting a church 
and building a porch for an older resident. Mary brought to my attention several videos on the Legacy Center website. I found one video in particular profoundly moving of resident Lenora Marshall giving her speech entitled, Descendants of the Elaine Massacre Still Living in the Area of the Killings. Here it is. We are descendants of the largest racial massacre in U.S. history. Today, out of the sacred memory spaces of our hearts and our lands arise a people called Elaine. A people determined to create a different world, a people without resources, but determined to build a world of equity for all people, for our children and our children's children. Equity that does not take from one to give to another, but to increase the quality of life for all. We may not change the world, but we will be a model for how the world can change. We are poor, among the poorest in the United States, living on some of the richest soil of the world. But we are determined to show the world how to move from poverty to equity. In today's language, we call it entrepreneur love, peace, and hope. Yesterday, our elders called it being God's hands and God's feet. This is to say we don't just dream it will happen. God, through us, makes it happen. That is authentic Elaine. It means building on our sacred memory with determination to create equity for all. Inspired by this speech and my initial conversation with Mary, I thought of the bike trail in Horseshoe Lake. I know social justice-minded people interested in history, people who are good listeners, people who are skilled builders, people interested in bicycling and paddling. By the end of another phone conversation, I promised Mary that I would do my best to gather a group of people for perhaps the maiden journey of the Elaine Legacy Tour. I'm not exactly sure when it will happen, and it may be a bit rustic and disorganized the first time around, but I do know for sure I will go back to Elaine again. Might any of, any of you join me in this endeavor? Oh, and I almost forgot. I did find out how the town got its name. It just didn't seem so important after everything else I've learned. There are a couple of versions of that story, too. One says real estate investor and developer Harry Kelly, who owned the property, had a daughter named Elaine. Another source said he was enamored with a certain popular movie star of the time, Elaine Hammerstein, cousin to Oscar Hammerstein. I'd never heard of her either. Oh, the things you can learn when you meander off the interstate. <laughs>